You're listening to the So What Podcast. For the situation that most evangelical churches in North America find themselves in, they don't recite the creed. Uh, the creed is foreign to their mindset, and so there needs to be teaching about why the creed is important as an expression of early Christianity. And uh, there needs to be a recognition also that early Christianity was communal in nature. It's uh, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, we've lost this in an individualistic West. And so it is helpful to confess the faith together with brothers and sisters. Welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Dave Kakish, Miguel Echevarria, and Brad Mills. On this episode, we're honored to have with us Dr. Michael Haken. Dr. Haken is a graduate of the University of Toronto and Wycliffe College, where he received a PhD in church history. He is currently Professor of Church History and Biblical Spirituality and is the Director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has written and contributed to numerous works such as Rediscovering the Church Fathers, Who They Were and How They Shaped the Church, and The God Who Draws Near, An Introduction to Biblical Spirituality. Today, Dr. Haken joins myself, Dave, and Brad to discuss the formation and importance of the Apostles' Creed to both the historic and the modern church. This episode will add to our current series on the Apostles' Creed, where we discuss that ancient confession of faith line by line, placing it within the context of the historical Christian church, while also exploring ways in which the Creed can sharpen contemporary Christian faith. And again, I just wanted to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoyed the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. Well, let's head over to our interview with Dr. Michael Haken. Dr. Haken, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Dr. Haken, today you're on the line with myself, Kyle Bashirs, uh, contributor Dave Kakish. Hello, Dr. Haken. And Brad Mills. Hey, Brad. Hey, hey, brothers. So thank you again very much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Haken, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I teach uh, currently at the... Uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a uh, professor of church history and biblical spirituality there. Uh, by birth, I'm uh, British. I was born in England, um, Irish Roman Catholic mother, and a Muslim Kurdish father. So my father converted to Catholicism uh, not long after my birth, and so I was raised in an Irish Catholic home. Uh, moved to Canada, so became a Canadian citizen um, in the 1960s, and um, uh, was converted there in 1974 in a Baptist context. Uh, sensed a calling to vocational uh, teaching in in the church, and went on got a PhD at the University of Toronto in church history, 
and have taught in uh, three uh, Baptist seminaries in Ontario, uh, Central Baptist Seminary, Heritage Theological Seminary, and Toronto Baptist Seminary uh, before coming down to Southern. Uh, I was teaching at Southern in 2002 as an adjunct, but 2000, January 2008 when, is when I began full-time. Hmm. The series that we're going to be doing here on So What is touching on the Apostles' Creed, going through it line by line, talking about its historic importance, its formation, and, and why it's important for us today. And so uh, we're having you on today to, to sort of uh, introduce us to the Apostles' Creed, have a conversation along those lines. So I guess the first and, and the most obvious question is this, who wrote the Apostles' Creed? And are we right to assume that the title of the creed is actually conveying its authorship? Uh, no. Uh, almost definitely the Apostles did not write the Creed. Um, the Apostles, uh, the apostolic uh, Christianity that we have in the New Testament undoubtedly is confessional, uh, creedal. Uh, we have instances of many creeds. Uh, for instance, 1 John 4, um, if, no, if a man does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, uh, then he uh, is uh, denying the faith. Uh, the same would be in Second John and other kind of snippets like that. And so the creed uh, is certainly in line with uh, early Christian confessionalism, uh, but there's probably little doubt among scholars uh, that the creed uh, came into existence as we know it uh, probably in the 5th century. So, when we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, then, this isn't something that was, like, faxed down from heaven. It wasn't something that we see in the very beginnings of the Church. Rather, it was formed out of smaller creeds? Yeah, the Apostles' Creed, then, is reliant upon earlier creeds. Um, uh, the creed probably evolved uh, from uh, Baptist, or rather, baptismal uh, statements, uh, there would be at the time of, of, a, of a believer's baptism uh, a mini, a really kind of a mini interrogation. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Uh, do you believe in God the Son? Uh, do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? Trine immersion was the norm. Uh, that is immersion three times in the early church. And so that would correspond to the form that normally develops of not only the Apostles' Creed, but also the other creeds, which are the threefold. You have three three paragraphs or three articles. That's really interesting. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Haken, this is Brad. Um, and kind of want to piggyback on what you were saying about those mini creeds. Um, you know, you're sort of an expert in all this early church father stuff, and, and I'm not really. So I did some research this week and uh, dug up uh, two quotes from Tertullian and then Irenaeus, where they're both sort of laying out. Um, what they believe to be the essentials of the faith. And they follow uh, something that looks really similar to the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I thought it might be helpful to read it here for our listeners and then sort of to orient you to it as well so that I could uh, ask you a question on it. So this is Tertullian, the uh, second century uh, North African church father. He, he wrote, Now with regard to this rule of faith, um, that we may from this point acknowledge what it is we defend, uh, it is, you must know, that which prescribes the belief that there is only one God and that he is none other than the creator of the world. And then he goes on to follow sort of a similar outline to what we have in the Apostles' Creed today. Uh, Irenaeus does something similar. Um, and, and so I just wanted to ask, really, um, with those early statements, to what extent are they 
developed in response to early heresy in the church, as well as um, you know the way they formed sort of a, a unified front, if you will, in the early church on what was uh, early Orthodox belief. Could you speak to that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are statement I just made regarding the nature of the creed in terms of its trifold structure, linking that to trine immersion, uh, definitely indicates that uh, one of the ways in which the creed emerged was in a baptismal context. A second uh, uh, origin for the creed was the way in which the church needed to respond to uh, various heresies that developed, uh, particularly Gnosticism, in the second century, and the affirmation that we believe in one God, who is identified as the Father, and then uh, in, uh, the Son, and then the statement about the Spirit, indicates that uh, there was an attempt uh, by the creed to refute and to guard the church against uh, Gnostic heretics who denied the sameness of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. When you say, um, so, I'm sorry, when, when you say Gnostic heresy, uh, could you explain that for us? Yeah, the, uh, you have the origins of it, I think, in the uh, apostolic period. First uh, John is wrestling with it. Second uh, John, both of which affirm the reality of the incarnation over against those who deny that Christ assumed flesh. Um, in First uh, Timothy 4, you have people in view who Paul indicates deny the goodness of marriage and certain foods. And then in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 16 to 18, you have people who affirm the resurrection has already happened, which must mean that they believe that the resurrection spiritually that takes place within a person's heart and life when they become a Christian is the only resurrection that matters. The resurrection of the body um, is not going to take place. In other words, you have a common thread running through all of these groups. Uh, all of these statements, namely that uh, there is a disparagement of the material realm, which fits very perfectly with the full-blown Gnosticism that we find in the second century, where um, the material realm is regarded as irredeemably evil, the spiritual realm good, um, where certain people realize this, they're the Gnostics, they realize that dwelling within them is actually a portion of God, which is, you know, their soul, uh, a divine spark, and the realization of who they truly are, that they belong to God, that their soul is godish or godlike, um, is for them salvation. Hence the, the word Gnosticism, the Greek word it comes from is gnosis, um, which means knowledge. So when, when we're looking at it, uh, sort of to, to, to come back to um, Brad's question, um, Essentially, what happened was the early church started out with orthodoxy. It started out with right beliefs. There are groups that come along and they try to veer the church in one of many different directions away from orthodoxy. And these small confessions of faith, these interrogations prior to baptism, as you've called them, uh, they they begin to pop up almost as an apologetic, as well as a as a as a, a theology of what it is that we believe, what it is that the the apostles have taught, what it is that Jesus Christ has given us as a faith, and and that's what essentially leads us to the Apostles' Creed. Would you would you say that's an accurate statement? Yes, I would. Although. Uh that would have been the kind of standard, that's the, that's the way that the early church views uh, the development of these creedal statements. 
and their encounter with heresy, that there is in the beginning orthodoxy and then attacks upon orthodoxy. In the last probably 100 years, uh, um, significant portions of contemporary scholarship uh, would argue, no, 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 this is, this, is, this is not an accurate account. They would argue that actually in the beginning there were various Christianities. And so people like Bart Ehrman uh, has a book called Lost Christianities, and he argues, you know, that the, the triumph of what we call orthodoxy is the triumph of one perspective among many. And uh, that in the beginning there was this incredible diversity, which only became uh, whittled down to, you know, a kind of one orthodoxy because of power issues. And um, certain individuals, usually identified as male bishops, seized the uh, ability to tell the story of the early Christianity and impose their perspective and labeling everybody else as heretics and themselves as orthodox. Uh, and, and then it, this kind of perspective initially emerged among liberal scholars. Um, and then in recent years, with the advent of postmodernity, uh, postmodern historiography has really taken it uh, you know, because it's very interested in issues of power, and so it fits very nicely into the, their narrative of how Christianity evolved. So it's very important to recognize, yes, I mean, what you've described there initially is the way I would view there is an initial orthodoxy. It comes under attack uh, from various groups. Um, that very early, um, and the uh, Irenaeus and Tertullian represent for us an apostolic faith. However, it is significant to, to recognize that not everybody telling the story of early Christianity today would regard that as an accurate uh, overview of the early Christian narrative. Moving back to the Apostles' Creed, I've always viewed the Apostles' Creed as a, as a basic map of the orthodox terrain. And in the same way that we have different types of maps, be it political maps, topographical maps, climate maps, road maps, uh, all depicting different perspectives or nuances of the same terrain, the ecumenical creeds of Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon, etc., they survey the same Orthodox land for a different nuance, if you will. Um, do you believe the Apostles' Creed is a sufficient summary of the general Christian belief? Um, yes and yes and no. It's, it's, uh, not as it's not as accurate in terms of the deity and person of the Holy Spirit as the Nicene Creed. Um, I think that's a better summary of uh, Trinitarian doctrine than the Apostles' Creed. Second, uh, the Creed uh, does not deal with uh, things like justification by faith alone. So, if justification by faith alone is a primary issue, which it is, according to Galatians, if you deny justification of, of alone, Paul says, may you be anathema, um, it's not really treated in the creedal statements. So, uh, speaking of justification by faith alone, obviously a large mantra of the Reformation, um, Michael Horton noted this about the Creed, the major Protestant confessions and catechisms follow the outline of the Apostles' Creed, and Calvin, John Calvin, even patterned his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion on it. So, my question is this, can you speak to the influence of the Apostles' Creed throughout the centuries, uh, even if we're unaware of it? Um, well, I think what uh, 
Dr. Horton is probably re referencing there is the fact that the earliest version of Institutes was patterned after the Apostles' Creed, the 1536 version. Later versions of, the, of uh, Calvin's Institutes take a somewhat different tack. What is retained is the broad threefold uh, discussion of the Christian faith in terms of deity. So book one of the Institutes is the is dedicated to the Father, book two, the Son, and books three and four, the Spirit. Um, the Apostles' Creed obviously has been seen uh, in more recent years as a unifying creedal statement. Um, uh, it's a statement that can be affirmed by uh, various uh, streams of Christianity, uh, be they um, Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, and so on. And so in recent years, it's been used as a kind of unifying uh, creedal statement. At the, um, very significantly, at the Edinburgh, 1910 Edinburgh Missionary Conference held in Scotland, um, Alexander McLaren, the well-known Baptist preacher contemporary to Spurgeon, uh, led the entire body in a recitation of the Apostles' Creed. And you had missionaries from all over the globe uh, representing, in that case, just Protestant, but representing various, various types of theological belief. And yet they found themselves able to come together under the umbrella of this one creedal statement. Wow. Well, Dr. Haken, um, you know, it, that that's really fascinating to me because while for me, I think I, I'm aware of the fact that a lot of people rally around uh, the Apostles' Creed. And uh, I'm sort of, you know, aware of the fact that even many church traditions recite it. But growing up uh, in, in more of a free church context, uh, we were very, uh, maybe even skeptical of creedal statements for their stuffiness or, or whatever. So I wonder if you could speak to maybe the contemporary evangelical sort of mindset towards uh, the Apostles' Creed. If it has been so influential through the centuries, um, why has it been sidelined in so many churches uh, in our North American context today? Well, I think, uh, first of all, most of the evangelical churches that we're thinking of uh, would come out of a free church tradition, be they uh, be they Baptist, Baptistic, or even other churches such as uh charismatic and Pentecostal churches. Um, and probably in some ways the root of the problem are, the, are, the, are people who I hold in high regard, the Puritans. Okay. And uh, radical Puritanism, uh, which would mean people like John Owen, John Bunyan, were very, very concerned about the work of the Holy Spirit and quenching that work through in worship through formality. And it seemed to them that the recitation of the creed, along with the use of written prayers, was uh, anybody could do it. Anybody could stand up, the person leading, the person being led, could stand up, recite this. If his heart was not in it, it was worthless. And so what happened uh, for many of the churches that came out of Puritanism, uh, you know, Disciples of Christ, the Campbellites, be they in the right. early 19th century Pentecostals, uh, they retain this this um, fear of form formalism, and freedom in worship is is the the central theme that becomes 
kind of passed down. And the great fear of quenching the Holy Spirit through simply recitation of written prayers or the recitation of the creed. And then in the 19th century, uh, you have a movement among evangelicals, which is, we don't need uh, theological statements. All we need is the Bible. Um, the man who can get up and preach at a moment's notice under the influence of the Spirit is a much more spiritual man than the man who needs time to prepare his statement. There is this fascination and great interest with the Holy Spirit, which is right and proper, but it fails to recognize that in years gone by, the Holy Spirit did use written creedal statements. Well, let me ask you this, just kind of a follow-up to that. Um, what sort of you know, attitudes or uh, even spiritual, sort of a spiritual discipline or spiritual uh, posture of our hearts should we come to the, the Apostles' Creed with? Um, how can we avoid falling into the worst of what the, you know, the radical Puritans and then through the, through the ages, what, what they're trying to avoid, the, uh, the, the quenching of the Spirit? What can we do to, to say and recite the Creed with, with our hearts as true, genuine uh, confession of our faith? Well, I think, uh, first of all, I think there obviously needs to be, for, for, for the situation that most evangelical churches in North America find themselves in, they don't recite the creed. Uh, the creed is foreign to their mindset, and so there needs to be teaching about why the creed is important as an expression of early Christianity. And uh, there needs to be a recognition also that early Christianity was communal in nature. Okay. It's, uh, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, we've lost this in an individualistic West under the impress of uh, Western individualism. And so it is helpful to confess the faith together with brothers and sisters. And not only those uh, brothers and sisters who are contemporaneous with us, but also those in throughout space and time. And so there needs to be an appreciation of church history. And uh, I'm kind of doing this uh, on the slide because I'm a church historian and love church history. <laughs> but it's, not, you know, it's another plug for why we need to know church history because... Uh, we, when we confess the faith, we are confessing the faith with all of those brothers and sisters throughout the ages who have loved the Lord Jesus. Um, so I think there needs to be some prior teaching about the creed, um, about why it's a means of confessing the faith uh, together as a church, and why that confession is uh, transtemporal. The, the reality is we face the, the, the challenge of worshiping God with fervent passion and from the heart, whatever we do, whether it's right. the use of written prayers, whether it's whatever, uh, you, it's always a constant battle against a variety of forces, you know, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to quote the standard perspective, uh, right. that plagues us. And uh, the, the throwing out of formal documents that are used in worship as in the hope that we will, by that, achieve spontaneity uh, is a pipe dream. Um, right. So, um, the danger of formalism is always there, whether or not we use formal documents. Dr. Haken, uh, I'm so glad we could hit uh, the depths of two of your areas of expertise in both church history and clearly biblical spirituality. We just need to hit Andrew Fuller and we can hit the Haken trifecta. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, now we're we're prodding at maybe some disinterest or skepticism as, as as to 
the use of the creed in the modern church. And I wondered if this might be helpful uh, for us to, to think through. And one of the fundamental tenets of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura. Can you unpack this term? And then, after doing so, parse the distinction between sola scriptura and solo scriptura. Yes, um, uh, sola scriptura was that in all of our theological reflection and all of our worship, well, theological reflection because uh, not only who is God, but how do we know him, um, and then worship, how do we then worship him? These were central concerns of the Reformation. Uh, the Reformers argued not against the use of tradition. They knew themselves to be part of a long line of churches and believers that stretched back to the apostolic centuries. It's apostolic century. But what they were opposed to was um, privileging that tradition over Scripture. And uh, probably the first figure who had ever done that would be Basil of Caesarea, who argued very late in his book uh, on the Holy Spirit. He said, one of the reasons why we worship the Holy Spirit as God is because of these various traditions that have come down to us about the Spirit, and uh, they're on written traditions, but they are equal to what we find in Holy Scripture. Hmm. Now, um, that becomes a precedent uh, through the Middle Ages, whereby things that aren't mentioned in Holy Scripture become binding, are used as binding on the conscience of believers as if they were Scripture. And the Reformers are opposed to that. The Reformers want to go back to the patristic reading of Holy Scripture, which by and large privileged Holy Scripture as the founts of theology. They are not junking the ages. If anybody was junking history, it was the group of people that we tend to know as the Anabaptists. Uh, not all of them, but some of them basically felt that they could go back to the first century and start as if 1,500 years had never taken place. Well, that, 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 just, that, just, that just is never the case. And so um, it's not, and the, the alternative to uh, sola scriptura, that it's not, but it's, it's, it's all that is needed for the Christian faith in any way, shape, or form is Holy Scripture. And uh, God has, in His mercy, given us uh, centuries of theological reflection. And uh, we are the poorer if we don't uh, pay attention to them, use them and yet always under the authority of Holy Scripture. I see. You offered us a helpful uh, warning about the radical Puritanism seeking for spontaneity and extemporaneous worship and expressions of worship in church, and, uh, and that may be feeding and bleeding into some of the skepticism of reciting something that's been pre-formulated. Uh, and I wondered, too, uh, you know, when C.S. Lewis was responding to the burgeoning Enlightenment thought, he prophetically admonished his peers that they were on the verge of committing a fallacy, one I'm sure you're familiar with, he called chronological snobbery. You know, the presumption that philosophy, literature, science, and or theology of an earlier era is somehow inherently inferior to that of the present era simply by virtue of its temporal priority. And I think we saw that fallacy poke its head even in the church through veiled mottos such as no creed but Christ, and as you mentioned before, just God, the Bible, and me. And thankfully, we've seen a renewal in many theological circles through, as one of the titles of your book suggests, a rediscovery of the church fathers. 
And in the retrieval and translation of earlier sources, a new appreciation of ancient Christian thought has, has taken place. There's been a resurrection of it, and uh, one we're really thankful for. Uh, but heeding Luther's warning, where he says human reason is like a drunken man on a horseback, set it up on one side and it tumbles over on the other, can we, spin, can we swing the pendulum too far and progress past and through the fallacy of chronological snobbery into something that I'm calling antiquarian canonicity? That is, if it is old, it's therefore true. Yeah, undoubtedly, uh, given uh, it's uh, very typically kind of a Lutheran, or rather a Luther saying that graphically uh, depicts uh, one of the problems of human experience in the history of the church, and that is the danger of, of pendulum reactions and going to extremes to avoid one thing. And so um, the last thing you would want, I, I would hope, in evangelicalism, but, but you are finding it, is this kind of, uh, I like the phrase you use, antiquarian canonicity, which is that um, if, the, if, the, if the statement was, uh, only if the statement is old do we, do we acknowledge it as true. Um, and you find... Uh, certain evangelicals rediscovering the fathers and ending up embracing uh, either Eastern Orthodoxy because they believe that that is the best uh, representation of the fathers or uh, Roman Catholicism which they also believe is the best representation of the fathers and so on and so yes there is a there is an equal danger so you can't you can't just say hey look Augustine believed this all the early church fathers, they believed this, they wrote about it, therefore it must be true. Any view outside of that is wrong. That's modernism creeping into your thinking. No, I, I, that's why we come back to sola scriptura. Scripture, scripture alone has to be uh, the ultimate uh, judge in our theological reflection. When a theologian does, uh, does theology, um, he uh, or she needs to uh, reflect, obviously, on what Scripture has said, work within the parameters of Scripture, be very aware of what has been said on the issue down through the ages, but um, if portions of thought in those ages, even the entire patristic tradition, goes against what Holy Scripture says, then Scripture must uh, win out in terms of uh, its authority uh, to command uh, obedience. So, Dr. Hicken, um, Michael Allen and Scott Swain in their book, Reformed Catholicity, they contended that the tradition of the church should be seen as sort of as a fruit of the Spirit. And they both go on to add that though it's fallible and it's imperfect, the creeds and confessions and the transmission of uh, liturgical forms and the catechetical training and the theological formulation, they're not just simply human products, but actually natural signs and instruments of the Spirit's illuminating presence. Would you, would you agree with that? And if you would, are there any caveats that you would add to that? Um, broadly speaking, yes, I think I would agree with that. Uh, the Holy Spirit has been active in the Church. Um, they, it didn't lead the Church to create the canon, but He led the Church to recognize the canon. Um, creedal statements like the, Apostolic, like the Apostles' Creed uh, sum up helpfully the theological reflection and controversy, how the church should think about various controversies from the early church. Um, and so there's no doubt in my mind that um, um, Michael Allen and uh, Scott Swain are broadly correct in their affirmation 
of what we would describe as a Reformed Catholicity. So to sum up, we receive the tradition of the church as an extension of Christ's promise to build his church and be with us always, even to the very end of the age, with the check and the Bible being the primary authority by which we approve or disapprove right and wrong theology. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Yeah, that's very helpful. Good. Well, uh, Dr. Hagan, thank you for joining us today. I mean, what a what a great way to kick off a discussion about the Apostles' Creed. My pleasure. Every blessing. The So What Podcast is a production of the People of Mars Hill in Mobile, Alabama. For more information, visit pomh.org.